Why, hello there, my music ed friends, and welcome back to the podcast. I've been thinking this week about a question sent in by Wendy Dunlap, who was wondering what I do when I'm out and need a sub, which happens with relative frequency because of my outside teaching schedule. Wendy was asking what we as music teachers might leave for a sub who is very nervous about trying to tackle music with the kids and who could blame that sub. I can't even imagine what would happen if I had to sub for, say, a math teacher. Actually, I can't imagine. It would be pretty horrible. But anyway, let me be very real with you about this. I certainly have left my share of movies in the past, especially after dealing with years of subs who were simply not interested in singing or moving or playing with the kids. But in the past maybe seven or eight years, I've come to figure out what feels like a good balance that seems to be working for most subs. And that also helps me ensure that the kids are doing music as much as possible when I'm not there. It's actually pretty simple and I feel silly that I didn't think of it before. But what I do is I try to focus in the beginning of the year on reviewing songs and dances and books and games that the kids really uh, enjoyed in previous years and that I would like them to be able to do very independently with maybe just a little bit of prompting in addition to the new tuneful, beatful, artful things that all grades work on when we get to school in September. What's nice is that this is a great and highly engaging way to start off every grade at the beginning of the year, K to five or K to four, whatever you do, while at the same time building a little nest egg of repertoire that can be used for emergency subplans, regular subplans, as well as just maybe something for the kids to do anytime we finish early, which happens like maybe two times a year. But anyway, maybe around October, each grade level has some nice new things with which they're fairly independent. And those have been added to those things they reviewed from previous years. And that's nice. It's a good bank of information. Honestly, if I just add a pitch and a movement exploration activity, they basically have a whole lesson. It's like they don't even need me anymore. I'm kidding. So to do what I'm suggesting, in addition to building that repertoire, you're also going to have to have some kind of tech to support it so that the sub feels the least amount of pressure to proceed. Subs, understandably so, are like very scared squirrels who will scamper away if you scare them by implying that they're going to have to sing or dance in order to lead the class, at least the ones I've met. So I make sure that my school laptop is set up and I have a pretty comprehensive general list of tech explanation for the things that they'll need to use. What's funny is I actually have a real life example from my plans for first grade this week, actually the day this podcast is debuting, because I'm going out to observe another teacher in our district for the afternoon. So I thought I'm just going to quickly go through it. And if you're interested, I will list it on our Facebook and Twitter pages. So basically, I'm going to have her ask the kids to come in and sit on the floor in front of the chair, which is something they often do. And then I'm going to have her play the pitch exploration video that I had made ahead of time. It will already be set up on the laptop and the kids are going to know to listen and then echo the sounds they hear while also moving their bodies. I'm going to ask the sub to remind them to access their very best head voice, what we call the unicorn horn coming out of the middle of their head, in order to make the most beautiful sound they can. 
Then the sub is going to play another YouTube thing, which is basically just a picture of a rabbit because mostly it's the music I want them to hear and it's gonna be old John the Rabbit. So the kids are gonna listen to the singing leader on the video and then they're gonna sing back the response after each line. After stopping the video, I'm gonna ask the sub to get a student volunteer and I'm gonna give her a list of possible names. That volunteer is gonna hold the big stuffed rabbit and sing the leader part. And the rest of the class is gonna take the smaller rabbit puppet that I have and each one of them will get a chance to solo sing and pass that rabbit around, which I know they will love. The next thing is a volunteer is gonna help lead the class in the rhyme I had a little turtle, with the hand motions, and then I'm gonna say, have them teach it to you. After that, the sub will ask all students to stand up in slow motion walk to form three lines by this particular spot in my room. Again, choose a student volunteer who is going to be the one who is fishing for first graders. And I will share some ideas for how to reel the first graders in. So in this movement exploration game, you could say, I'm fishing for first graders and they are coming to me by their elbows. And the first graders will come to you. This is from Dr. Fire Robin's movement exploration book from, from First Steps. So they'll do that for a while and then the sub will then ask them to spread into scattered position, which is what I call self-space in my room. And they're going to prepare to do some very beautiful movement. And she's going to play the skating Move It, which is available to FAME members on the website. And the kids will notice silently mirror the movements in the most beautiful way possible. And then depending on how time is going, I'm going to tell her to direct them to sit in circles of like six to eight kids. And they're going to play Akabaka as a counting game on the ground. And then I will end with asking them to read a book to the kids, read a hole in the bucket, which we have been doing for a few weeks now. So this is coming back after a while. And then I'm gonna tell the sub to say to the kids, now would you sing it to me? And I think that's a great way of ending that. I mean, it sounds like a great lesson, am I right? <laughs> so it's actually something I can feel really good about leaving. You know, maybe I'll be out more often. I'm just kidding. Anyway, like I said, if you're interested in seeing them written out, I will be happy to share my example on the Facebook and Twitter pages for the podcast. Now, let's get to the podcast, which is a continuation of the last episode in which we delved into the first half of John's Fire Abed non-negotiables list. In this, the second half of our interview, John begins by discussing the idea that repetition is the mother of knowledge. So talking about the importance of rote learning in his philosophy. And then things begin to get more and more interesting as the discussion progresses. You'll hear me get more fired up about things and ask my many questions, which is not abnormal at all. You don't want to miss it at all. So let's get going and drop right back into the interview where we left off last time. So let's get on to the next one. All right. And that is, I don't say it like this. Repetition is the mother of knowledge. Repetitio mater scolorum. Yeah. And I, I love footnoting. Uh, <laughs> here's the footnote on that one. Um, while teaching one summer at Silver Lake College, uh, one of the visiting Hungarian professors, Laszlo Vikar, Laszlo Vikar is the husband of Kotlin Farai. Uh, Laszlo Vikar was here teaching us a class called Folk Song Research. 
And during the folk song research, he was teaching us some pretty complicated tunes. And he said, just let me sing it for you a few times because repetitia mater scolorum. And I went, whatever, what's that? And then he said, repetition is the mother of knowledge or of learning. And I wrote it down and thought, that is so true. Teachers sometimes are afraid that rote learning is not real learning. Right. And rote learning is real learning. It is a requirement for all higher order thinking. So repetition through rote learning is a very good thing. You don't think you learn the English language by repetition? Right. It's how you're going to learn. Mm -hmm. You're not going to learn how to play the piano without repetition. Repetition repetition. is how we learn. And the idea is, the challenge, of course, is to make the repetition not tedious, make the repetition inviting, interesting, challenging. Um, And then great learning takes place. But you have to remember to do whether it's the four by four plan for repetition or it is some other form for repetition, that repetition is critical for good learning. And don't be afraid to say, we did that last week. Dude, that's great. One time a parent, you know, parents that come to these classes, they don't really know what the goals of the class are. Uh, We we do try to give them written material and my DVD from um, public television called Music and Intelligence. Um, but in the beginning, I remember a parent coming up to me going, in the second lesson, we did all these songs last week. And I went, yes. Right. And she said, well, I thought we'd get different songs in the second week. And I went, well, no, the children are just starting to come to the songs in the second right. week and the third week. They're not. They, they're enjoying them more. They're developing more confidence with because That's it's familiar. There's going to be more. Par- I think that parent thought that they were. She was bringing her child to a weekly Raffi concert. Right. And every week say. should be the next concert right, and the next right. concert and well, the next concert. It's like concert. a consumer mindset. It's but like I you, want a lot of songs to learn. Yeah. Oh, yes. And, and they wouldn't know any of them. Right. And you could just imagine: Would you go to a piano lesson and say every week you're getting new pieces? Every week we're going to have new pieces to study on the piano. No, there's a process. Some are well-known, right. some are mostly known, some are halfway known, some are just beginning, and here's a new piece. Right. And that's exactly it's called learning. just like our classes. Not Lots of repetition <laughs> so that we can keep moving things yeah. to mastery and off the, off the chart of things so that need to come. So don't be afraid of repetition, but make it engaging at the same Absolutely. time. It's not just repetition for the sake of repetition. Repetition is the mother of knowledge. Oh, I've heard that. How do you say it again? Repetitio mater scolor. Excellent. Well, let's get to the last of the non-negotiables. This one is, this one is, I don't know if you remember you, you and I, I had last, uh, whenever it was, a year ago, I said I was going to try this this year because honestly, I do not always do this. Any response is the right oh, response, yes. even when it's no response. But I, I promised this year, and I'm in the middle of it, to try to adhere to that because you won me over completely. Because I think I definitely see the beauty of this statement, but part of the pragmatic negative person in me is like, I have a lot of kids who are going to stop, and then the next kid stops, and the next kid stops. And I told you that I would just try it, and no matter what happened, I would, any response is the right response, even if it's no response. So if a kid didn't do it, I'm just going to go, thank you, you know, move on to the next person. And it's going well so far. I guess I'm not shocked, because you're always right about this stuff. (laughs) Again, the footnote, because I didn't come up with this myself, I was told it. Um, My children went to the University of Hartford preschool. And I became friends with the director of that preschool, Regina, Dr. Regina Miller. And she 
brought it up one day. We were just setting off to the sides and chatting in class. Um, and it didn't have anything to do with music. It had just to do with learning in general. Sure. And she said, you know, we don't pressure the children in the preschool to, to make any kind of set accomplishments. We offer them opportunities and we watch for it to emerge. Hmm. And it's just how language happens. You can't make a child talk. Right, right. You just, you know, you say, say mama. And right. he goes, right. and you go, oh my God, a non-speaker. But that's what music teachers do. Sing this, bum, 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 because bum, bum, bum. You go, oh, my God, a non-singer. Right, They're right, not right. a non-singer. They're just emerging. emerging. And if that, that was their response, it was the right response. Mm. That's, it's, it's, it's right because that's where that child is today. And you want to assess. And the way to assess is to let them do what they can do. Right. And then you say, okay, we got our work cut out for us on that one. And that's going to have some more pitch exploration. going to probably help mm. that child. A little, we're going to stick with some of the more simple fragment singing songs for some of these children. And maybe that'll help. Um, so you can do better assessment if you follow that rule. And okay, so let me talk to you about, so that's one thing, the one thing that you're addressing there. The other thing is the kid who, and this is where you got me last year. No response. No response to be a smart aleck. Yeah. Or no response. So we have like a selective mute. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. Then you have a kid who's just trying to be funny. And you convinced me by saying, I guarantee if you just keep passing Pacify. over that kid. And that's where I was getting stuck before because I'm stubborn. So part of me is like, oh. If we're battling, I'm going to win. This comes up sometimes when I'm doing my summer classes. A, a teacher will bring this up and she goes, is this for all grades or just certain ages? Mm -hmm. And it's true. I do shift my attitude about this sure. around second grade. Yeah. So younger than second grade, any response is the right response, even if it's no response. Because I'm working in a first steps in music kind of attitude about developing tuneful, beatful, and artful behavior where I'm assessing how is the child doing. But if there's no response yet, whether they're being a dirt ball <laughs> or, or, they're, or they're just shy, you, by, by just passing and giving a non, don't give any kind of an emotional response. Right. A flat. That's what's difficult flat. for That's me. Negative. But I've gotten good at it. And you just go, you, you, just, you, don't, you just move to the next yeah. child. And oftentimes this child who didn't respond was wondering, well, what are you going to do? Right. And then Waiting. you go on to the next child that you did absolutely nothing and they go, oh, I, I didn't get a turn. Right, that's right. And sometimes they come up and they pull on my shirt after class. They're on their way out. Can I sing it now? And mm -hmm. you go, sure, but next time it'd be easier yeah, if you just if you did just class. Did yeah. And, and, you know, don't be in a hurry for this because it sometimes takes months, even sometimes years, you hear from teacher, this child didn't sing at all in yes, kindergarten. that happened And a lot. I just gave that child space. Mm. And that child finally saw other children coming on board. None of them died when they sang. <laughs> right. And so maybe I'll give it a right, try. Right, exactly. And it usually comes out that most children get on board. They yeah. want to be part of this, this fun. Sure. And they're missing out on... They got to put the puppet on and they didn't sing right, and they, they took the puppet off. And next time I think I will <laughs> sing so I can keep the right, puppet a little longer right. or whatever. And again, you're tapping in to the playfulness that's inherent in a child. Yes. So they want to do that, just are not used to it. A lot of. So I guess my attitude is to give endless opportunities and let the child emerge when they're ready. Right. Um, and just make sure that the endless opportunities are appealing. Yes. And if they choose not to chime in for the time being, I'm hopeful and trusting that it, it will work itself out. And it usually does. So now we've gone through these non-negotiables. As I said earlier, I think any one of them is great. What did you want to say? I actually have a few more non-negotiables oh that gosh. I would like this to just, I can make this fast. Debuting here yeah, on the podcast. Is. Well, I've said these things, but I don't think that um, I've really mentioned them before as non-negotiables, but they are a couple of uh, benchmarks 
And then I use developmental stages. And I'm almost hesitant to say these things because, again, it's developmental, not chronological. And right. I'm about to give you some chronological But here are ages. some caveats. It's That's just right. some chronological. So let's take, the, I have two things to say about don't do this before second grade. And the reason I'm going to say that is, as we know from the aptitude testing of children, that their brain's neurofiber is still developing. And their, pro, their ability to function in the with the uh, neurofiber is still developing, but uh, becoming hardwired pretty soon. Usually around seven, the child's neural network is pretty well established. And as Piaget taught us, there is a di difference in the way children process from at seven, pre-operational and concrete operations. So we get to the stage of concrete operations with conservation because the brains are changing around age seven. We want to optimize the neural development for music before age seven. So there are certain things you should do. First steps in music is the sort of things you should do. So I say, before second grade, optimize the brain with activities that do that, which means here's my non-negotiable, no notation. No notation before second grade because that's seven years old. So after seven years old, the hardwiring is pretty much done and we're gonna to have to deal with the, the strengths and weaknesses right. in our classroom. What we've got. What we've got. And now we can introduce notation and start working with how do you teach notation to children sure. that struggle or are gifted. But we can help all the children become more gifted before second yeah. grade if you yeah. teach the right way and notation doesn't do it. You're wasting time. You're wasting the lifetime potential of yeah. a child. Introducing notation is taking time away from something else that could be exercising the brain much better than notation. There's a lifetime to learn notation. Yeah. There's not a lifetime to optimize the brain. Hmm. So we're gonna, we want to optimize the brain by seven, and we have a whole lifetime after Boy, that. Boy, that is a bombshell. To teach notation. I know a lot of people with hearts and bumblebees. Nothing to look at. I know that. Nothing. Uh, this comes back to, in my talk this morning, I was reflecting on... Um, my experience in Belgium when they told me about notation. the word about music, that the word music is you can't see music, you can right. only hear music, yeah. and that we shouldn't call what you see music at all. Well, in Belgium, they don't. They, if you see it, they call it notation. Right. But we are sloppy about that. We think we're teaching music, but music in Belgium is only what you hear. If you're teaching oh, music, yeah. you're teaching the sound. If you're teaching what you see, they don't call that teaching music. They call that teaching notation. Right. And I would like to make that distinction. Up to seven, we teach music. And then after seven, you can teach music and notation. Mm. But before seven, just teach the sound of music. Nothing. Well, but, and at. what do you say to these thousands and thousands of teachers who are doing this in first grade, kinder? I just saw well, it I'm on just gonna Instagram. Keep... People are like, today in kindergarten, the kids learned you know, quarter notes and eighth notes. But they can. They say they yes. can do it. Yeah, yes. they can, but should they? Yes, that's what I say. All the, I'm like, at what cost are you taking that time away from playing music. You know, another example of this is uh, I, I use the planting corn in clay. Mm -hmm. um, I can plant corn early in the season in unfertile soil and hope it'll do the best because it's planting season. It's May. You should plant the corn in May. Another farmer will say, well, I'm going to risk delaying planting the corn because I think I'd rather prepare the, the, the soil in May and compost and manure and turn the clover under like the farmers do. And then I'm going to plant the corn a month late where will we be in August? The May planted corn in bad soil is only going to be a foot tall. And the corn that was planted in June in fertile soil is going to be full and yeah. full of ears of corn. People are afraid, well, if I don't start teaching reading and writing in first grade, the students will be behind. If you develop 
the soil in first grade, right. learning is five times faster yes. in second grade. Jane Healy, one of my heroes, wrote Endangered Minds. And in it, she cites a study with uh, children learning to read. In first grade, the children were giving their reading books in September. Typical what most schools would do. And they had their 10 vocabulary words, and they learned how to read sentences and whatever. Um, another school decided that instead of getting their books in September, they would be in a language immersion program. And instead of 10 words a week, they would learn hundreds of words a week. But they would learn them only by ear. So oh. it, was, it was conversational. It was right. learning language and, and developing language in these children first. These language-focused children got their reading books in January. So three or four months later than the other children. By April, the language group had not only caught up to the September group, but passed them by. Mm. Now, most principals need to know this message because right. it's the principals that are demanding kindergarten teachers need to start reading. Mm -hmm. First grade teachers need to start reading. And music teachers, we need to start reading. Not in first grade. The brain is changing in first grade, and it's our last chance to increase intelligence. Mm. And we can increase intelligence yeah. up to seven years old. And after seven years old, we have a whole lifetime to teach right. them to read. So why, why? I don't know, it's not just music. <laughs> it's a problem in, in just general, we are just stuck in an old fashioned ideology. Yeah. It's It's been debunked and yeah. people should stop doing this. We yeah. need more aural learning to organize our brains so it's, it'll uh, allow us to better learn from our eyes. But when you learn from your eyes, it shuts off your ability to use your ears to learn. So you learn slower and less. But, so just let me ask you this. I'm thinking of so many people I know, even people who have taken training courses, fame courses, who, have, who are still kind of reverting to this um, first grade quarter note to eighth notes. And it's so funny, besides the fact that I say that same thing you say, I always say you can't, I'm never debating what they can do. There's so many things that they can do, but are you doing the best thing you can do? So why would they do that? Is it just because that's what we've always done? Or they're being told that it's what the curriculum's making them do. Our right, district right. has this in our first grade outcome. What am I supposed to do? I get that question all the time. Yep. And I go, quit and work in another district. <laughs> well, do you know, you know Emily Marek, a yes. wonderful teacher, famed teacher trainer. We have a joke on the on the Facebook page, but it's true. It's, we call it quietly insubordinate. Uh, so all my administrators turn off your ears for a second. That's okay. You can fire me if you want. I've never had this, but let's say, because I get that question all the time. Well, we have to teach first, you know, kindergarten guard or 16th notes. And I'm like, first of all, do not get me started on it. But let's say I was in a district and I wanted to stay there. And they said that to me, I would, if the administrator was coming into my room, I don't have any more qualms going, hey kids, look at this. Check out these 16th notes I wrote on the board. What are these 16th notes? This is, you know, due to data, whatever you want to say. Okay, oh, good job kids. And then the administrator leaves and then I just return to normal life. I know it's a terrible thing to say that that's what we do, but it is the well, right thing but, to do. But it's not terrible because I'm the professional. I'm the one that's guarding that's right. their musicality. I doubt the principal has a degree in music education right. and is telling us yeah. that we should be teaching And the teaching principal is way. just trying to do what they're supposed to do and they've got a thing. But I guess I can't understand why thinking practitioners would hear what is such a powerful argument that you're making and still return back Just to it. read Jane Healy's Endangered Minds. Yeah. It's all there. Yeah. Uh, and lots of research to support it. Now, Excellent. I want to give a caveat on this one also. Yeah. I said no literacy before second grade. 
this is another footnote. Uh, in a conversation at the time, a fellow from Belgium, his name is Gilbert de Grieve. He was the president of the International Kodai Society. Uh, he often came to the United States because he was a pianist and would concertize. And one time he stopped by my school, my classroom, and we had lunch and we were just talking casually about all this. And I was asked, telling him about this, you know, I Kodai people, I just think we should all wait till second grade to start notation. I just, you know, in Hungary, all the children come to school at age three. All of them. Hmm. And they have a fantastic music curriculum in place yes. for three, four, and five-year-olds. And in those three years of music education, there is not one piece of notation. Wow. Nothing. Because it isn't time to teach notation to three, four, and five-year-olds. It is the time for preparation in abilities. Of course. So with the preparation in abilities, that means that they go off to first grade in Hungary with three years of preparation in abilities, and they're ready for notation at age six. So the Americans studying the Kodai approach go, well, at age six, we introduce notation. But the context, it's the soil preparation again. They had three years of soil preparation, and now they're ready for notation at age six. Then they're ready at six. Because their brains are probably optimized as far as they're going to go by six. Right, right. But our children come to school at five with nothing. Right. And as though they were one-year-olds. And we're going to say we're going to start notation after one year, uh. and you're going to be optimized. And that just isn't the truth. We know from the research we only have a short window till seven right. to optimize these brains. Why would we not want to spend at least two? If Hungary needs three years to prepare the brains for notation, <laughs> right. we need two. Right. All right? We need six. <laughs> at least, well, maybe. <laughs> right. But we certainly need two. So Gilbert said, here, I would not say no, not notation until second grade, but say not notation until benchmark foundations are shown. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the better thing for me to say was stick with first steps in music till 90-some percent of your kids are singing in tune, and then if you want to start conversational solfege and introduce notation. But I'm pretty much going to guarantee you that the majority of your students won't be ready for that until second grade. Right, generally speaking. So yeah. there's a little caveat on yes. my little non-negotiable. <laughs> it's easier because it's going to be most of the time sure. you shouldn't start until second grade. Okay. There will be exceptions. Okay. Is there another? I have several more. Oh, my gosh. Here's another one for second grade. Uh, I get this. Uh, well, this is a footnote. Phyllis Weikert. Um, Phyllis Weikert, uh, early on as an undergraduate, I saw her at conferences. And uh, later on, when I worked at Hart, we hired her as an adjunct faculty member. So she would come during the year and teach awesome. classes. And in the summer, she would teach with us. So I got to know her, and I got to hear her over and over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, some of the stuff that she would say like metronome marking 120 to 136. Right. That's the first place I ever heard that. And I ask her, do you have research on this? I didn't know that. I didn't know that was where you That's where I got that from. Oh. And well, I, I mean, I knew you got it. I didn't know that but, was the very first. But that's for the first one. Wow. And uh, I, no, she did not have research on that. And she said it's just anecdotal. It's just her experience right. that they do better when you stay 120 to 136. Later on, there were other people like John Flora at Texas Women's or Daryl Walters at Temple that did the did research, research and found out, sure enough, she was right. So here's another one that I think Phyllis Weikert was, said back then. She said, children can't walk on the beat until seven years old. Second grade again. And I thought, really, is that true? I have three and four-year-olds that can walk on the beat. But she was talking about the majority, the average child. Sure. I have three and four-year-olds that can walk on the beat because they've been in my program since they were right. six months old. Right, and they've right. been feeling the beat being bounced and wiggled and tickled and tapped and all that. But the child that comes to us in kindergarten with no music experience, it's going to take quite a while before they become so comfortable with the beat and meter before they're able to really walk mm -hmm. on the beat. So you'll notice in First Steps in Music, I don't encourage activities where the children are expected to walk on the beat right. until maybe 
the end. Uh, I'd say by the end of first grade or the beginning of second grade, I'll start doing some games where I'm going to see if they can walk on the beat as well. So most of the beat keeping that I do with children are non-locomotor mm -hmm. until late first grade, beginning of second grade. And then I start introducing locomotor beat. So, is, I'm sorry, is walking the first lo locomotor? Yes, okay. and, and, but walking 120 to 136. And frankly, that's folk dancing. Yeah. So we can walk on some simple circle games in first grade to start building the skill of walking in that tempo. And when you can see most of them are walking on that tempo by the end of first grade, beginning of second grade, it's time to learn folk dancing. Hmm. So it's the natural transition from keeping the beat on your body in kindergarten in first grade, moving to walking the beat in first grade. By the end of first grade, you should have developed that competency so that in second grade, they can walk the beat in folk dances. All right. I still have more. Let's hear it. Those two were second grade non-negotiables. Uh, except I gave caveats for both. Uh, so normally I don't start literacy until seven years old, and I don't walk on the beat until seven years okay. old. Uh, here are two things that I don't start until third grade or eight years old. Oh, I know, I, I know one. And the first one is rhythmic movement, and this comes as a, a shock oh, to boy. a lot this is a of big teachers. One. Um, and the, the phrase that I like to use is beat on the body, rhythm in the voice. And that is to give a context to the rhythm. If I'm keeping a beat on the body, and remember, uh, I'm not teaching rhythm patterns until the majority of the children are beat competent. Mm -hmm. So I know that they should be able to keep a beat on their body. And then if they're keeping a beat, tapping the beat on their body in, in meter groups of two or three, and with their voice echoing rhythm patterns, then I know that there's a context for the rhythm that they are repeating. If I'm clapping a rhythm pattern, here's another one where teachers go, but they can do this in kindergarten. Yes, they can, but should right, they? Right, right. Clapping a rhythm pattern is an echoic response without a simultaneous beat uh, feeling in their body. You don't know if they're bringing actual musical meaning to what they've just echoed. Uh, the precision of rhythm depends on what I call the inner metronome. You'll see that children that are invited to clap ta-ta-ti-ti-ta in kindergarten are still clapping ta-ta-ti-ti-ta <laughs> in fifth grade. Yes because they are unable to progress to anything more complicated because their inner metronome is so weak. So we want to make sure the inner metronome is finished before we start moving rhythmically. So if I was an ORF teacher, that means if I'm doing xylophones, I would do the patterns with the mallets where both hands are playing the beat right. or alternating hands on the beat. But I wouldn't play a boom, 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 where there's two eighth notes right. in a movement with my hand until third grade. Whoa. So rhythm patterns are only for your voice before third grade. After that, you can put rhythm patterns in your body. And that's when we learn hand bone patterns sure. and we start doing all kinds of fun stuff. There's no harm in waiting till third grade. No. And again, you'll see the payoff. The inner metronome will be so strong, you can throw all kinds of crazy yeah. stuff at these kids in third and fourth grade and they can do it. Yeah, and we certainly have seen plenty of kids and then grown-ups who cannot maintain steady beat, who cannot. And I think that's a reflection of what's happening in the classroom. Yes, if just clapping a rhythm pattern doesn't teach beat. No, not at all. So I think beat is the more primary thing that we want to make sure is in place. And again, it's the context for rhythm. Hmm. Rhythm has very little meaning by itself without its relationship to the beat. Okay. The other thing that I would say, not until third grade, is singing in parts. I knew that was Yes, it's because I'll footnote Helen Kemp on this one. Uh, she once said, it is much more important for children to sing beautifully in unison than badly in parts. 
I couldn't agree more. And I don't think any elementary teacher should apologize for having a children's choir in fifth and sixth grade that presents pieces in unison. I would love to hear a fifth and sixth grade choir sing a piece beautifully in unison. In anything. <laughs> you know, cranking out. But I want them, they're going to cover their ears so they don't hear the other part. Right, and they're going right. to do their part. And that's just not musical. That's yeah. whatever. But when I first introduce part singing and I say in third grade, I'm still assuming a couple of years of experience. So there's the caveat again. It's developmental, not chronological. Chronological third grade if they've been singing since kindergarten. So you know they have the security in unison singing before you try that. And then when you're first introducing part singing, I highly recommend the first experience are bass lines. Because bass lines are very secure for children to hear the tonic tone and the dominant tone while another part of the group is singing the melody along with those two pitches. That will introduce the concept of harmony in the classroom in a secure way. And after some experience with that, you might try other experiences like rounds and cannons. But I don't start with rounds and cannons. Here's another teacher in kindergarten. Oh, I'm teaching my child, uh, row, row, my class, row, row, row your boat okay. in kindergarten. And I go, no, you're not. You know, they might be shouting the words rhythmically, mm -hmm. but they certainly are not going to be tuning harmonically with the other parts. Right. They are not at no all way. hearing another part. They barely can hear their own part. So, yes, you can do that, but it's a senseless activity to do in kindergarten. Yeah. You want to wait till they're tuned and they have a strong sense of tonality before you try layering so baseline first. I like baseline first. It's just two pitches, and then it, it, it's so solid because it's the root of tonic and dominant that it's not hard for them to find those pitches and sing them accurately and then tune the melody to those baseline tones. Um, and then rounds and cannons later on. And what about partner songs? Partner songs, I'm sorry, that would be in the middle. I okay. missed that one. So baselines, partner songs that share bass lines. Yes. So if you find two songs that have the same chord progression, well, they can be sung at the same time. That's exciting. Yeah. And not hard for children to sing a song while another group of children in the room are singing a different song. So you could actually have three things happening then at once, right? One part doing the bass, one part doing one song, and one part doing another song. Or find a third song, and then you have four <laughs> parts, and it goes on and on. Right, right. So yes, I think you're right. Bass lines are the first harmony experience in third grade. And then partner songs are the next harmonic experience in third grade. Mm -hmm. And rounds and cannons can happen after that, probably also in third grade. Mm -hmm. But let's remember Helen Kemp's words. It's much more important to sing beautifully in unison than badly in parts. Those are my non-negotiables. I'm kind of speechless. I, this is like a, like a bonus that I wasn't expecting. So this is fantastic. Right. Well, lots for people to grapple with. They might Absolutely. want to listen to this podcast a couple of times. Yeah. Also, there was a lot of stuff. We will in be this splitting one. this into two podcasts. <laughs> oh, that makes sense. <laughs> um, well, Dr. Fireobin, that was fun and informative, and I never get over the fact that I feel like I've heard you in every context possible. You know, conferences, courses, on a cruise, <laughs> you know, sitting in a room, talking in a car. And every time there's something new to learn. So thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm happy to share. Yeah. And we're happy to steal all your ideas for ourselves. <laughs> thank you very much. And we'll see you the next time. Thank you. Welcome back to the other side of the non-negotiables. How are you holding up? Everybody okay? What did you think? Are you on board with the idea of holding off a bit longer on introducing notation, or does this seem strange to you? As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts for or against any of the things you heard, or maybe you just want to talk about what really resonated with you as you listened to 
the non-negotiables from John. Please check out our Tuneful, Beatful, Artful Music Teacher podcast Facebook page, uh, our Twitter account, and now we even have an Instagram. And speaking of the podcast, let's wrap this thing up with our Ask Me Anything segment. Today's question comes from the amazing Connie Greenwood, one of our famed teacher trainers, and she asks how I deal with vocal fatigue. If you know me, you know this is a subject that's near and dear to my heart because I have significant voice issues that basically started in the first year of my teaching 24 years ago. So because of that, I'd like to break this Ask Me Anything into two parts because it's just that important to me. And I want to today just make a very important public service announcement. Wherever you are in your teaching career, please go and find a wonderful ENT, an ear, nose, and throat specialist, and get scoped, get your vocal cords scoped so that they can see what's happening. Especially for those of you who are young teachers, doing something like this gives you a good baseline for vocal health. And if you start to suffer in the future, you'll be able to go in and get scoped again, and they can compare it against your very first scope, uh, which is incredibly helpful. I so wish I would have done this many years ago. Personally, I have been scoped many times. I've had two surgeries on my vocal cords. Um, I've had the nasal scope where they snake this thin, like, rubbery wire down your nose, and it hovers above your cords. And I've also had the pleasure of the rigid stroboscope, which is, I guess, mostly like having a metal slide whistle shoved toward the back of your throat and drops this camera down. Now, it's not the most pleasant or comfortable thing in the whole world, but entirely worth it and crucial if there are problems now or down the road. So please, even though I'm not making it sound very pleasant, I hope you will be brave and go make an appointment to get scoped and let me know how it goes. Also, fringe benefit, you can show your students and freak them out. <laughs> Bonus, anyway. All right, enough TMI and making you depressed. Let's turn to happier things, like the podcast, which is generously supported by the Fire Robin Association for Music Education. Please do consider becoming a member of FAME because there is a growing body of benefits for members, including my upcoming new Star Wars movie debuting in time for May the 4th. Please visit fireabendmusic.org for more information. If you have questions you'd like me to answer either via email or on future episodes or you have ideas for interview topics or just general questions, please email the podcast at tunefulbeatfulartfulpodcast at gmail.com. Want to find out more about Dr. Firebin and his programs and resources? Visit giamusic.com slash As always, everyone, thank you so much for listening. I truly hope that the podcast is encouraging to you, that it provokes you to thinking, and that it is helpful. Please tune in for our next episode, and until then, keep doing all you can to create a more tuneful, beatful, artful world. <laughs>